Ladies and gentlemen, you're about to experience the Gut Check Project, talking science, health, and innovation that you can actually use. But this isn't just another health show. We're here to have fun and make your time enjoyable. Well, while you are enjoying yourself, know that even though the GCP covers some health topics with healthcare pros, we are not your doctors. So use our show to entertain your mind and not for medical advice. And now, here are your hosts of the Gut Check Project, Dr. Ken Brown and Eric Rieger. Hello, Gut Check Project fans and KBMD Health family. I'm going to do it like Russell Brand. Hello, everyone. We are now on Rumble. So, (laughs) anyway, so if you're here, you're seeing it. On Rumble, of course, you're still listening on Spotify, iTunes, or anywhere else you get an RSS stream. I'm here with the awesome host of Gut Check Project, Dr. Kenneth Brown. Ken, what's up, my man? Well, what's going on is we've officially made it because what happened is in our last episode, 99, we were talking science, just science, and somehow the peeps at YouTube decided to just pull us off. So we're going to continue discussing what we want to discuss, but thank goodness there's a platform like Rumble where we can talk about things related to COVID vaccines, where we can talk about things like long COVID and stuff and not just be pulled for no reason. So this is our second episode, which is now on Rumble. So if you're one of those that happens to listen to Gut Check Project and you're only listening on Spotify, iTunes, etc., you have not witnessed any interruption whatsoever because the RSS feed has been able to exist like normal. Let's just give a quick overview. And this is this will be our catch-up for this particular episode. All right. Um, We published episode number 99 to the normal places that we go to. YouTube, Rumble, iTunes, and then everywhere else. Um, That being said, YouTube let us last for just over eight hours. Is that right? (laughs) Right around eight hours. And what's crazy is, Ken, is that you you said, hey, Eric, you've... You've discovered this, you discovered that, but what did I do? I shared with you usually, if it wasn't on Spotify, it was a YouTube link. So everything that I shared with you was actually already being at least referenced, if not fully shared, via YouTube as well. But you and I aren't one of the larger platforms, so someone flagged us, and episode 99 on YouTube does not exist on YouTube. But... Now we finally were forced, we knew it was going to happen eventually, we were finally forced to launch our Rumble Gut Check Project uh, account, which is also affiliated with Locals. So you can go to Locals.com, search for Gut Check Project, and join us there. And actually, it's probably a good thing. We'll have new content there, um, new outreach, and it's going to work out well for us. And if you're sitting here going, well, what's Rumble's, what's local? I was shocked when I have now been seeing some national TV advertisement and it was pretty awesome because it had an umpire next to somebody trying to talk. Yeah. Did you see this? No. Oh, it's great. Guy was wearing a Rumble t-shirt and he starts to talk and he says something just like whatever. He's like, I don't think that the weather's the way it is. Whoa, strike one. And it's an umpire. He's like, what are you doing? He's like, I control the media and you just got to strike, my friend. He's like, why am I doing that? I'm just telling you my opinion of what the weather is. Strike two. And then strike three, and he goes, screw this, and he takes his jacket off. He's wearing a Rumble shirt. And he's like, just go to Rumble where you can talk about what you want to talk about. Well, that's actually hilarious, and that that personifies exactly what it is that we experienced. I feel like that we've taken nothing but an altruistic approach to everything that we've tried to bring to this show. We may disagree with the guest, but we let them talk. And that's what the whole idea is for a platform to exist. And medicine, science, research does not exist if you can't bring a challenge to something. And if, if what you believe in is correct, you shouldn't 
really worry if somebody wants to challenge, you should be comfortable in it being correct or always be open-minded to what you think might actually be challenged and you can either find a better way or an alternative way to approach things. Absolutely. And the way that we think and what we come across is not based on strictly opinion or ideals. This is the Gut Check Project. You check your ego at the door and we talk science and we try and make sense of the science. That's all we did in the last episode. That's it. We just referenced some really smart people and that's what we're going to do today also. Because because of that episode where we discussed the science behind what's going on with people having reactions to the mRNA COVID vaccine, long-term issues, and even long COVID, we got a slew of emails where we were kind of praised for this. They're like, that's so cool that you guys are willing to take this on. And, you know, what were the, what were, what is the one thing that everybody kept asking us to do now? What do what do I do now? So, I mean, we made a reference in, in the early part of 99 that we were going to go through the protocol, but more often than not, the responses that I began to get were, send me that protocol, somebody explain it to me. What does this mean? How does this work? And that's, I'm really kind of glad that we we had already said that we were going to do that because, I mean, from friends that have called me, uh, JR, you're one that I just talked to earlier today, um, basically said, send me that protocol again, because I want to protect myself and my family for those who did this, um, who I'm, I'm sorry by this, they, I mean, they got vaccinated. They may not even necessarily have a symptom, but they want to protect themselves because what's happening is that we have an issue of vaccine adverse event reactions. So, I'm just going to go ahead and kick it to you, Ken, so we can move into that part. Well, yeah, the 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 part that we got a ton of emails because when we said that there's a protocol for this, a really common thing is, well, I've been following the FLCCC, which is the frontline COVID critical care group composed of some super brilliant people from day one that have stayed the course, they have risked their careers, and they are coming out on top. And that's what we were talking about was Dr. Cole and Dr. Russo, right? Russo? Urso? Urso, yes. Urso. Yeah, Urso. Dr. Urso and Dr. Cole in the last episode. Uh, But rightly so. They said, this is like a 58-page document, and I don't have any medical training. Can you guys please see if you can break it down a little bit? And that's what we're going to do today. We're going to try and take this... Um, I guess the title of it is the, you know, long COVID reaction protocol and treatment. And it is, it's 58 pages long and it's thick, but we're really going to try and break this down so that you can at least wrap your brain around it in case you or someone, you know, has some issues. It's called the, I recover protocol, the post vaccine treatment protocol put on by the FLCCC, which is composed of many doctors now. It appears that it's many, many doctors across the world that have come together. But the founding members, you'll probably recognize their names because they have been everywhere, including Joe Rogan, and that's Dr. Paul Merrick, Dr. Pierre Corey. Uh, We've got Dr. Flavio Caragiani out of Italy. And then you have these contributing doctors that you hear all, all about that have been involved since day one. They're not listed as founding members, but they've certainly contributed like Dr. Peter McCullough 100%. and Dr. Ryan Cole. Yeah, and just a quick note on, on the, two, the two first ones that you mentioned there. Um, we gave reference to Paul Merrick in the last episode talking about how much he's been published. This guy's a pulmonologist and intensivist and is one of the most published physicians in the history of ever, period. He's on a lot of different research protocol very much involved with intensive care 
And the guy has an altruistic approach. He was brave enough to step forward and say, this is what I'm seeing. It's actually the opposite of where the CDC is. And I think that he stepped in saying, hey, guys, let's look at it another way. And what shocked him was the pushback, the pushback from him just being honest and saying, I'm not seeing it the way that you're describing it. I'm not encountering, you know, my clinical practice is not yielding what you're saying I should be expecting. Furthermore, Pierre Corey, who had this uh, similar experience, this guy, before the vaccines actually rolled out, testified in the December of 2020 in front of Congress. I think it was the, a Senate hearing. If you go to YouTube, you also won't find that that uh, that uh, testimony where he specifically talked about how they had intercepted activity which looked like it could be life-saving utilizing ivermectin. And this is before it hit the airwaves. This is before people began to demonize it and call it horse dewormer or horse paste, whatever you want to call it. But he was going forth with legitimate data and that was the we, we hit on it on the last episode yes we did on why the nih and cdc wanted to more or less squash that information but youtube quite compliant with this narrative yanks it and pulls it down and i think you can still find it on on rumble somewhere but it's it's a fascinating uh testimony where he just was pouring his heart out and not knowing he was going to be meeting resistance. He thought he was sharing great life-saving information only to be pushed back on. And that's when he American others said, we've got to do something about this. Yes. And so I commend all of these doctors for sticking to their guns, risking their careers, getting uh, their privileges revoked from their hospitals, attempting to remove them. And these are some of the most accomplished critical care doctors and pathologists out there. Like these guys, the, the work that they've done, the people they've taught is just amazing. And what they've been able to do is they put protocols down. They do have an acute COVID protocol. They do have uh, long COVID, but the long COVID protocol is very similar to this uh, post-vaccine treatment. And what they did is they put a protocol for healthcare providers, us, caring for patients with symptoms following the COVID vaccine. And this protocol is specifically based in science and it's postulated on the pathogenic mechanisms. So looking at what's actually happening on a cellular level, pharmacologic principles, clinical observations, and feedback from many, many, many vaccine uh, injured patients themselves. So from a scientific perspective, it's very thorough and it's very deep, and they're utilizing everything that they can at their disposal right now, right here, right now, because people are having issues. And that's really cool, because the protocol actually focuses on two major approaches. One is promoting autophagy to help get rid of the cells. Autophagy is when there's programmed cellular death. We talk about this on the show all the time, to get rid of the cells that have been uh, sort of infiltrated by the spike protein, and then using interventions that actually limit the toxicity and pathogenicity of these spike proteins. So decreasing the ability of those proteins to cause damage. Two really simple fundamental principles right. that kind of work for everything. Yeah. It's not it's not some weird, um, you know, out there kind of thinking. And the most important treatment goal is to help the body restore a healthy immune system. Because it turns out the reactions that people are having it disrupts and makes an imbalance of the immune system. 
Yeah, it definitely does. And so just uh, three quick things I kind of wanted to hit hit at. Um, one, everything that we're going to go over in terms of the protocol, the source, and where they received it from is going to be available in show notes. So you'll be able to easily click there. You can always go to gutcheckproject.com if you're ever having difficulty finding things like this, and you'll see all the episodes listed. Uh, the references for this, where you can find easily printable PDFs, both the short form and the long form, will be there from the FLCCC Alliance. Um, if you just want to shoot straight to their website, I don't blame you. FLCCC.net is exactly where you'll find all of the protocol, and you can you can see them for yourself. Um, something that was a little interesting from uh, goodness gracious, I just just uh, dropped the ball on that. Oh, from some of the people that were writing in about vaccine injury mm -hmm. the crazy thing ken is is not that you and i wouldn't be motivated on behalf of a group of patients anyway but there were a few of them that you and i shared back and forth some of this is is truly personal and you and i've heard and know of people who've suffered from vaccine this specific <coughs> vaccine injury itself so it's beyond just trying to cover some topic because it happens to be heavy in the news. Um, certainly don't want to or, or disclose any names, but we've got people that you and I both know between each other. And then of course, independently that are suffering and they well, want a way out. I'm looking at these guys. These guys formed this group because they were forced to see these people. And they're like, we can't ignore this anymore. There's not a gastroenterologist on the FLCCC mm -hmm. Alliance, unless we want to talk about Dr. Um, Hazon, Sabine. Oh, Sabine, yeah. Sabine, Sabine Hazon, who's, I, she wasn't listed on this, but I do know that she is an advocate of this. Correct. She's a gastroenterologist that we had on the show. She wrote the book, Let's Talk Shit. <laughs> um, it's a great episode. Just check it out. She's a wonderful person. But I'm seeing in my, in my clinic, I'm seeing people that have never had a flare of their ulcerative colitis or their Crohn's, whether it's coincidental, who knows? But something happens. We know that this is a triggering of the immune system. And if you listen to episode 99, you can go, aha, that's what's happening to me. I've become a little spike protein manufacturing unit is mm -hmm. what, really what it comes down to. Right. And so even as, a, even as a provider myself, I'm hearing this. And if I dismiss people, this gets back to when we were discussing SIBO way back when. And I said, oh, don't worry. You just have IBS. And be like, oh, don't worry. You're just anxious and all this other stuff. No. Something's going on here. You're not, you're not normal. You're not how you used to be. Right. Let me at least see what we can do. And that's kind of how I approach medicine in general. I try to think, okay, you're not better. I'm your third, fourth opinion. You know, how, what can we do? This is one of those things that I'm hoping somebody hears and says you're not alone. And we're going to go over the numbers. The, all of this is based not on conjecture or anything. We'll go over a little bit of history, the numbers, how many people are actually being reported, how much of this is being discussed in the in the main press, but that's all, and we're gonna talk about some different things. Like you mentioned ivermectin, which for whatever reason, that's a polarizing term. I mean, people hear that and they go, oh, these quacks are gonna talk about this. I get it. It's, it's It can be one of the recommended therapies that they've done, but it's also a very well-known FDA-approved drug that's been around for a long time. Recent study just came out, and we'll go ahead and address that. <clears throat> and so it's just having people have this cognitive dissonance and just shut off the second they hear a word that's been programmed by the mainstream media to say, if this, then this person. Correct. It's quack. If this person says this, they're, they're it's quackery or whatever you want to call it. And, you know, in, in summary, what these guys have done is that they've developed this I recover post-vaccine protocol, which 
58-page comprehensive approach to the management of post-vaccine syndrome with the goal of restoring a healthy immune system and allowing the body to heal itself. The protocol is constantly being updated as new data continues to emerge. And based on consultation with other trusted healthcare providers, this is a moving target. They're not making any money doing this. They're just doing it because they're damn good doctors. Yeah, that's exactly right. And uh, I think as we navigate through here, just like we made reference in episode 99, the, the first thing that we mentioned is not only are they not making money sharing this, the, the, first, the very first thing that they recommend in the, front, in the uh, first line therapy is fasting. It doesn't cost you anything. It's, there, there's ways for people to participate in this. That it, This is not some big... Uh, yeah, so as we get into these different protocols, you'll see that it is completely attainable for everybody. They 100%. purposely did that. They're doing it on lifestyle and support. Uh, let's let's show, if somebody's listening to this and they're like, this is BS, this isn't going on. Let's just talk a little bit of the history of what's, yeah, let's do that. what we know now. So we're talking basically up till December 2022. We're in February 2023. As it stands right now, the CDC, the NIH, the FDA, and the WHO, the World Health Organization, do not recognize post-COVID-19 vaccine injuries as a specific medical condition. Even though there is a specific ICD-9 or ICD-10 code, which shows the true magnitude of this post-vaccine syndrome is completely unknown. What that means is, when there is something going on, these coding and insurance companies have to agree that we use a code to say, okay, you have angina pectoris, you have hypertension, that's an ICD-10 code. Mm -hmm. It has its own code that the medical establishment and insurance companies have agreed, okay, this is something, let's agree to this, but formally, our national organizations, CDC, NIH, FDA, and WHO, are like, nah, we don't know what that is. Yeah. Like, but... Everybody else agreed it's a coat. Everybody else agreed it's something. They're like, nah. It reminded me of the Ministry of, Def of Ministry of Information back in the Iraq War when basically they always made those memes of him saying, nothing to see here. And in the back, there was like planes bombing all over the place. <laughs> Everything's fine. It, that's, that's what it's like because there are bombs going off. And the bomb is, is that there are vaccine injuries, and they know it because they allowed to agree to a code but publicly pretend as if it doesn't exist. Yeah. And but in Europe though, I believe they do recognize it, correct? Yeah. So let's let's just look at this. So there's something called the VAERS data. You've probably heard that out there. Well, the VAERS data says this, the VAERS data says that. That's V-A-E-R-S. That's where doctors report adverse events. As a physician, it, they make it not so easy to do that. So let's start with that. So it's an onerous thing to go ahead and do it. But as of December 2022, 1,476,227 adverse events have been reported from the COVID um, mRNA vaccine, including 32,621 deaths, 185,412 hospitalizations, 15,721 heart attacks, 35,718 cases of myocarditis, and 60,758 cases of permanent disability. So, according to Open VAERS, note that VAERS data is limited to under-reporting. Un, under so, quick trivia question. How much do you think it gets under-reported, Eric? Well, it's not a guess. Uh, on average, up and until 
mRNA vaccines. They Harvard, Harvard Medical School estimated that it was you could basically multiply everything by a factor of 30, all of the vaccines historically, which have ever been tracked in VAERS, by a factor of 30. I say that with a caveat of they believe that it's been even less reported than the, the previous. So go ahead. Yeah. So as somebody who I myself had a reaction, I didn't write in. I've seen a ton of patients. I've not had the time to write that in. So the 30-fold makes sense. Well, not only that, do you remember when we listened to the recording of the nurse who was trying to function uh, on behalf of oh. her hospital a year and a half ago, and her entire job was to, in her spare time, spare time was to turn in VAERS uh, reports until the administration came down to her and said, stop reporting the adverse, uh, adverse right. events. This is, a, this is a fully recorded call because she knew what was going on. Yeah, and she's talking to them. And, and – for whatever reason, there was uh, a narrative around VAERS which tried to discredit its validity, even though it's something that the CDC has leaned on the, it, for its entire existence to track uh, vaccine injury. And you can see all vaccines on there. And by comparison, the, it, there is no comparison. The number, the sheer number of people who have reported vaccine injury concerning the COVID vaccine is I wish I had the numbers in front of it. it. There's no comparison. It's far, far, far more. But 30 times your one, almost 1. 1.5. I mean, what we're saying is at least 45 million. So the true incidence is unknown. Correct. So using the data that we have, just the data that we have right here, mm -hmm. not doing the 30 fold. The available data consistently and reproducibly demonstrates a rate of serious adverse events of around 8%. It's huge. The vSAFE database administered by the CDC demonstrates an 8% rate of significant adverse reactions also. Now, when you translate this to the U.S. vaccinated population, this would mean 18 million people are out there suffering with some sort of vaccine-related Injury and that injury can be described from we're going to go over it, but right. basically a whole slew of things leading to even up to death. Now, I've heard other people talk about this that they've stopped other vaccine trials when it was oh. like 10 deaths. Yeah, that's yeah. exactly right. So, we're looking at 18 million vaccine well, injuries. So, let's talk about those numbers. The, the other two uh, most referenced uh, vaccines that they, that they had referenced one was. Uh, a, a problem of one in 10,000 and essentially with this data, what they're saying is there's at least something reportable in one in 800 and something. Yeah. Those are not close. That's not even a little bit close. No. So the problem is, and what I've heard from my patients and everyone is that the reality is the mainstream medical community does not recognize post vaccine syndrome which has resulted in these patients being shunned and denied access to care that they actually need and deserve. And this is from quotes from their protocol here, mm -hmm. which is the most altruistic line there, which is, I don't care if I'm risking my career, which is Paul Merrick and Pierre Corey and them. They all did this. They said, these people deserve care. The Correct. numbers don't lie. Although there is limited clinical, molecular, and pathological data on these patients to inform a really thorough approach, by coming together as this group of doctors, they can talk about the mechanism, they can talk about 
the background of what's happening and they can come together and say, this worked on my patient, this worked on my patient, which ultimately has led to this large protocol. So commend them. And I, it's an honor to try and sift through this and we're probably not going to do it justice. Maybe one day we can get one of these brilliant and brave people on the show to kind of dive a little bit deeper, but we're going to try our best to get through it. That's the background of it. So if you're one of 18 million people that have had any issues and we can, we're going to talk about some of these issues and the list is long. This is all from the VAERS data that people have called in. So it's pretty wild. Hey, something that just occurred to me before we get into that part, um, uh, kind of a, a social thing. Everybody saw the, at least the video of you weren't watching the game. Uh, number three for the Bills, DeMar Hamlin, go down. Oh, yeah. And so uh, immediately there were those who were like, well, he was uh, the physician that he saw uh, had even made either a tweet or some type of uh, public acknowledgement that he had um, uh, been boosted. I think within two weeks of that game, or oh, maybe it was three that. weeks okay. or something like that. But regardless, um, uh, that acknowledgement, Drew Pinsky talks about how many people have said that. Can I clarify something really quick? Sure. So when he says Drew Pinsky, he's talking about Dr. Drew. Everyone knows Dr. Drew. Oh, from Loveline. From Loveline. Adam stuff. Carolla. But he's been a practicing physician the whole time and really smart. It's Dr. Drew Pinsky. So Correct. go on. And he's uh, been a. Uh, somebody that has really brought these experts on his own show to oh, discuss this. Not only that, he's pivoted. I mean, yeah. he started off in favor yeah. of the vaccine and, and then basically after reviewing data on his own, decided, you know, I need to start giving or making certain that I'm giving some voice to some of this opposition because it's being covered up. A quick side note on that. I didn't know he was so smart. Like, I get that he was smart. I thought he was like a TV doctor yeah. and just talked sex with Adam Carolla and yeah. he's funny and whatever. <laughs> I'm like, oh, damn, this dude's smart. Yeah, no, he's... but. He has, he has a, a specific concern with DeMar Hamlin on why we don't know what happened. And he has a couple of things on why it's not commotio cortis, which, of course, is the blow to the chest, and then suddenly you hit a, an R on T wave disruption of the, of the heart and make it stop, which is what people said. Oh, commotio cortis, commotio cortis. And he's correct at this. That almost always happens to a young male, pre-adolescent, where they don't have a lot of musculature on their chest wall, and it's usually an elbow or a hard-thrown ball mm -hmm. right to the chest, not somebody with shoulder pads on. Furthermore, one resuscitation is all that it takes to overcome that because it's an interruption in the electrical cycle. It's not something that's like a pulmonary embolus or a clot that stopped the heart from... That's, from, that's the old where we were taught in med school, you know, give somebody a precordial thump. Yeah. And get it coming back get on. Get it coming back on. It's mm -hmm. exactly right. And so what when he makes reference to that, he says that, uh, furthermore, Michael Strahan interviewed him the week of the Super Bowl, interviewed DeMar Hamlin, and said to him, the whole world wants to know, I'm kind of surprised ABC News aired this, the whole world wants to know, do you know what caused it? And I'm paraphrasing exactly what Strahan said. And for a several-second pause, Ultimately, DeMar Hamlin says, I'd rather not say. Whoa. Yeah. I mean, if it happened to be the thump to the chest, then you say it's a freaking thump to the chest. But, you know, afterwards, he was intubated, and there were the reports that he was in a bed that was turning, right? Turning him, uh, you know, uh, face down and different things like that. That is usually, not always, and I don't want to speculate too far, but that's usually something in that a lung field needs to be able to be opened so that the air is getting there while he's intubated. 
if if it was just a commotional cortis, that's that's not what you'd be. So you feel that it was much more of a pulmonary embolus causing it? I, I don't know, but I mean, as we'll get into here, if it did match up, if it did, if it did, then it would it would it would stand to reason that that some type of throm, thrombosis somewhere contributed to it. And we'll, we'll get into that. All right, so let's talk about the pathogenesis briefly, because in reality, episode 99 was our pathogenesis episode. Correct. Meaning we went into great detail about this based on science. So I'm just going to summarize it super quick. It comes down to the spike protein in the vaccine. It's likely the main factor. And the mRNA, the vehicle that does this, is toxic on its own. Not the mRNA, but the lipid nanoparticle is. So... Uh, seven quick things. Number one, the spike protein can circulate in the blood for up to 15 months and can affect the immune system by inhibiting certain cells and processes. Known fact. Number two, those lipid nanoparticles in the vaccine can also cause inflammation in the body on their own. Number three, the neurologic symptoms caused by the vaccine are due to inflammation and other processes affecting the brain. Number four, the vaccine can cause the body to produce autoantibodies, which can lead to a variety of autoimmune diseases. We went into detail about affecting the ability of the immune system by producing more IgG4. Look at episode 99 where we get into that. The spike protein can cause blood clots, both large and small, which can lead to serious health problems. The vaccine can also cause allergic reactions and immune dysregulation leading to other conditions like mast cell activation syndrome. And if you're somebody that is dealing with that, this should be an aha moment right now. Finally, the vaccine can activate dormant viruses and bacterial pathogens leading to infections like recurrence of Lyme disease, recurrence of Epstein-Barr virus, mononucleosis, and recurrence of herpes simplex. Seen a lot of people showing back up with shingles. So... That is briefly what is well known in the pathogenesis, and they go into tremendous detail about this. We talked about this mostly focusing on the clot aspect on Mm -hmm. episode 99. Right. So one of the things that we do know is who's at risk for this. Certainly people at risk are those that have an immune dysregulation already. So if you have autoimmune diseases, if you have things like that. The second thing is we know that there could be a genetic component to this. This is maybe why it's like, well, we've given hundreds of millions of vaccines and only 18 million are hurt. But if we know more about the people that are, for instance, these, they have shown that patients with an MTHFR gene mutation, Mm -hmm. which we talked about, who's the doctor that we had on for that one? Oh, uh, Joanne. Joanne Kennedy? Yeah, from Australia. Joanne Kennedy is an MTHFR expert and mast cell expert. Um, It appears that people that have that are at higher risk. Those that have Ehlers-Danlos syndrome are at higher risk. And people that have different loads of the vaccine, this comes into the different lots that are out there. Mm -hmm. So you have a genetic component, and then there could be this other component of the actual vaccine could have been mishandled in various ways or have had higher levels of the mRNA vaccine in one lot versus another. All of these can actually play a role. Surprisingly, we're seeing that sex plays a big difference also. 80% of the vaccine injured in the VAERS database are female. And it appears that treatment with estrogens has been reported to worsen or even precipitate an event or relapse. Wow. Yeah. Now, uh, women are also higher to have autoimmune issues following this, like lupus. 
It appears that estrogens interfere with the glucocorticoid, uh, glucocorticoid receptor signaling and estrogens will modulate B and T cell function. And then finally, underlying nutritional status and comorbidities. Surprise, surprise, it turns out that uh, people with pre-existing conditions are priming themselves to have an unusual immune reaction to this. And that comes down to those people that are have the um, diabetes and hypertension and stuff like that. So uh, people that are uh, bad nutrition, like low in vitamin D. Mm-hmm. This is where all of this is coming up, where you're like, oh, okay. So we know what it can do, and we know that certain people are at risk. Right. It should be discussed. Yeah. It should definitely be discussed. It certainly wasn't when I got my vaccine. No, it wasn't. I mean, and you hit on one that was really easy for us to all talk about, and that would be vitamin D. If you did nothing else, making certain that you were having enough either vitamin D that you were orally consuming, or if you live in an area where you could have gone out and received enough sunlight to make that conversion. And people asked, both NIH uh, head Fauci and some others, uh, Walensky at CDC, what their opinions were on vitamin D, and they were quiet. In fact, Peter Hotez, who was on uh, Joe Rogan, and some people even think that he might be the next in line to replace Fauci, had absolutely no answer whatsoever when asked about supplementation of vitamin D and its benefits. He basically just said, who who knows? Yeah. Even though he said his internist had recommended that he take it sometimes. Sometimes. (laughs) So... Let's move into this treatment protocol because this is where I think you you have some knowledge in some of this that I love to get your your input on regarding some different things on the physiology regarding some different modalities but just really quick the overview of this it's a treatment approach there are no published reports detailing the management for this. I'll keep this up again. If you Google this and say, what is the management? There are no published reports. This is what exists. The FLCCC, because they're not getting this published through a peer-reviewed journal, because as we know, even during COVID, they had retractions from some of the biggest journals that were complete bullshit. Yeah. How did that make it into print? And they're like, uh, you caught us. Never mind. Yeah. We're just going to take it back. So this is all through postulated pathogenic mechanisms like we talked about, pharmacologic principles, clinical observation, and feedback from a lot of people. And, of course, the primary goal is to help the body restore and normalize the immune system. There's two major approaches. Let's go ahead and promote some autophagy and help get rid of that damn spike protein. And they do go through this, that this is not a one-size-fits-all. People need to try this, try different regimens. This is a learning curve for everyone. So they've broken this down into stage one, stage two, and stage three trials. So the biggest thing is as you're heading, as we're sitting around trying to still deal with this as a group, there are preventative options. And if you've received this and you have a reaction, the recommendation is to not have more shots, which is flies in the face of what I'll see on the news. It's like, go get your six-month booster, six-month booster, <laughs> booster. Look at episode 99 where we talk about the effects of getting more than that. And if you um, have long COVID, avoid getting further vaccines as well. That's what we do know because it really comes down to we need to regulate your immune system before all of this happens. So I don't know where you want to go with this. If we want to talk about, start talking about the protocol or start talking about some of 
the treatments and then we can flip back as to why that treatment might be effective because I just wanted to give the background yeah. mostly because it's 18 million people need to hear this. I, th- I think the best way to do it, this is a really, really in-depth review. And just like you said, it's there's not a whole lot of other treatment protocol that can necessarily back up what they are pioneering to do. Okay. So rather than get in the weeds, I think that if a lot of people are listening to this, they're just like, okay, tell me what it is and why I would use it or, or what that would look like together. And then if you wish to go further, then use one of the links that we provided or go to flccc.net and look it up for yourself because it's there. And on top of that, at the very end, every reference possible that they used to come up with it is cited. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's there. So rather than do that part, then maybe what we should do is just make it so that it's a little bit consumable and get it on people's minds so they can see what the, the protocol is about. And if you're wondering, well, I don't know if I have a vaccine-related injury. They do have on page eight of their protocol, they have the title as Complications, Injuries Caused by COVID Injections. What they did is they looked at 2,400 peer-reviewed articles that were published on the vaccine injury, and they compiled a list of different things that have been reported. Um, a lot of, a lot, a lot of different stuff has happened to people, and a lot of people that I have talked to have suffered from a lot of these different things, all the way from depression to menstrual cycle irregularities to polyarthralgia, polyarthritis, yeah. just pain unexpected. They're going to doctors all the time. Just So take a look at that because you may have been told, oh, well, you have fibromyalgia, which is a nonspecific muscle pain, when in reality this could be post-vaccination syndrome. So maybe a good place to start since there, that is a pretty extensive list of just a bunch of different things that people could be experiencing. Some of the more acute things that people have definitely witnessed whenever they're talking about the number of otherwise stellar athletes, whether they mm-hmm. happen to be in soccer, football, whatever, track, uh, that have fallen ill, fallen down, had sudden cardiac events. All, the, uh, all of the various athletes who have now reported myocarditis has sidelined them. Why don't we start with the anticoagulation post-vaccination in three clinical phenotypes, what that looks like. That sounds perfect. Okay. I'll let you lead it. So the first the first is the what they call the typical post-vaccine multi-symptomatic syndrome, and it's characterized by fatigue, brain fog, and multiple complex uh, symptoms. And that's what they usually attribute to microvascular inflammation. Microvascular thrombosis is part of the complex path and post-vaccine spike-related disease. So what they're saying here is that if you have brain fog, you don't feel like yourself since you've begun the COVID vaccine or vaccination protocol, you might actually be suffering from some micro uh, thrombi that have uh, disrupted blood flow and small parts of your brain. And this is, this is kind of what they want to speak to because the second one, and we'll get to, to why that is. The second one is one that they call the sudden cardiac death within the first two weeks up to seven days following the last dose of a vaccination. And it's usually an arrhythmic or an arrhythmogenic death related to catecholamine-induced contraction, uh, band necrosis, spike-induced inflammatory myocarditis. All they're saying here is that the body reacted quite poorly and rapidly to the influx and the production of the spike protein. And it's causing inf- uh, uh, inflammation and whether or not it's causing narrowing in and around the heart. Someone is 
not adjusting well to their recent vaccination, and they end up having an arrhythmia and die. Not saying Demar Hamlin, but maybe you never yeah. know. The, when I read that uh, contraction band necrosis, mm-hmm. I was just thinking that that blocks the you form a a dead area that forms scar tissue, which blocks the neural transmission. Yeah, is what I was thinking. One hundred percent. Well, so and so, that's why some people said that if the the uh, the location. Uh, the focal point of the location where the myocarditis occurs, sometimes if it, let's say it happens to be in and around the, the, the line from the AV node to the SV node. Well, now that's why some people may experience uh, mild symptoms that look or resemble a complete heart block or mm-hmm. interruption or, or type 2 heart block. It's causing a disruption, just like you said. And um, so that is a part of the arrhythmogenic death or at least complication. Um, and and they, notice that they say death you can still have an MI and survive it. You don't necessarily have to die to have yeah. fallen into this uh, this phenotype. The third phenotype would be the one who dies suddenly. This is probably more along the lines of those who had an injection a long, long time ago. They're out doing high physical activity. They've not felt symptoms. They don't necessarily know that they don't or that they're suffering some type of inflammatory cascade. And they fall down and die. And it's happened. The numbers have gone up. It's not to say that no one's ever done it, but I mean, I. Well, okay. So, four to six months after, what Doctor Cole discussed was that as you continue to become this this spike protein manufacturing unit, yeah. your body, you keep getting these boosters. Then what ends up happening is that you get this progressive spike induced endotheliitis, meaning inflammation in the lining of the blood vessel. And he described it that the spike protein comes in and then your body is like, this is too much of this is built up. And then it, it tries to get rid of this, starts causing inflammation, leads to the coagulation cascade. Yeah. And then he went into great detail about these people uh, specifically do not have the ability to break down that actual clot. And then that results in this thrombosis. Okay. So, uh, like, like I said, I, I know that we're trying to keep this in layman's terms that we, we got an email about that, too. That to we got get, a lot of emails about that. Yeah, we did. <laughs> Except the one about Michelle A. And they're like, oh, I feel her pain. Yeah. Yeah, it turns out it uh, was definitely not Chicago. Anyway, <laughs> so um, one thing to hit on when we're talking about the the issue with the clots building up in somebody with, with uh, spike protein, and that is... These clots that are related to spike protein from the vaccine are rich in fibrin with amyloid-like fibrils, which are resistant to fibrinolysis. Now, in layman's terms, what that means is whenever you're forming a clot, the clotting cascade, uh, fibrinogen turns into fibrin, it gets converted, and those fibrin turn into the clot. But over time, that clot needs to be dissolved. It needs to be taken Mm -hmm. rid of. or gotten rid of, and allow normal blood flow. And what isn't happening is the normal fibrinolysis to break that down can't occur because the spike protein has basically folded the protein to where it doesn't doesn't respond. So think about that. It's commandeering your body to form clots, which either can't or take a very, very long time to be broken down. They congregate. That blocks blood flow. And when you block blood flow, especially around a heart muscle, then you have that problem. So, um, yeah, totally. So that was fascinating when Dr. Cole said he started staining these clots. He goes, it's a really simple stain. They can stain. And he goes, to my shock, there was all these amyloid fibrils. So basically, 
the clot forms and it's got these like weird barriers yeah. where our own mechanisms can't break it up. Can't break it up. Well, and worse than that, so I'm so glad you brought up him, him doing the slides because the, the one other thing that he added to that is he wanted to go one step further. How can I determine if this is vaccine induced or if this happens to be just some people who suffered COVID. And what he found was that if something is viral induced, there's a signature from the nucleocapsid that will show that that spike protein was delivered and formed by the virus. What he was finding was spike protein with no nucleocapsid, spike protein alone, meaning it arrived after being generated by the host which the host is the person and the person's generating it because they'd gotten the vaccine with the mRNA, which told them to make it. Yeah. So that's the argument that, that has always been used as well as probably COVID. <clears throat> it was probably COVID and the vaccine. It, it, it would have been worse without the vaccine. Yeah. He's standing and showing it's not COVID and it's really bad with the vaccine. Yeah, that's right. So um, outside of that, it's a lot of application of anticoagulants that somebody may want to uh, consider using if they have. So let me just comment on this, because when we look at typical anticoagulants and the patient population, the biggest risk of taking an anticoagulant is bleeding. Mm -hmm. And we look at people, the risk of having an adverse bleeding event. So when somebody comes in with a stroke or they come in with a heart attack and we put them on anticoagulants, the thing you always worry about is that you're, you're treating one thing and then you cause another thing, which is like a cerebral bleed or whatever. If you're over 65, you have high blood pressure, if you've got kidney issues, if you have diabetes, if you've had a previous bleed, if you have male sex, this all increases your risk of bleeding. And looking at the different protocols which have been tried, it's the typical anticoagulation. Makes sense. Total makes sense. We're talking about drugs like Plavix and Zorelto and these drugs which are great in the cardiac realm because that's what we know. But I learned something reading about this, and it's something super cool that may be what we really need to start looking at, and it's called natokinase. I'll throw natokinase back at you. I think natokinase is really cool. I didn't know about it really until we read this, but uh, essentially natokinase is made from fermenting soybeans, specifically with Bacillus subtilis. What's great about Bacillus subtilis is we actually have experience using that recolonizing uh, the colon in a spore form. Um, but it's it's a natural anticoagulant. I mean, that's what its so job is. what's fascinating is, so they put the soybean, Japanese fermented soybean food with Bacillus subtilis, and Bacillus subtilis can break that down and produce this enzyme called natokinase. We put Bacillus subtilis as one of our megatrio with atrantil, the polyphenols, mm -hmm. Because it can break those polyphenols down into beneficial products. This is a metabolite. It is. Just like we talk about where you need to feed your microbiome what it needs. So I love seeing this, that this is being used. So in fact, when they look at Japanese studies, a high natto intake. So you don't have to take natto kinase, but if you take natto, has been associated with decreased risk of cardiovascular disease, mortality, and ischemic heart disease overall. So... If you have the right microbiome, taking natto can do that. And so we know that natto kinase actually has potent fibrinolytic 
antithrombotic and antiplatelet activity. And natto is the food that's mm-hmm. formed from that, and it came from Japan. And Japan is definitely one of the blue zone areas in the world, meaning that they have a high healthy population because they avoid lots of cardiovascular disease when compared to other parts of the world. Maybe natto consumption is is a piece of that. And it's new to me, so I'm learning about it, but it, I mean, it, it's it's somewhat curious. So I'm glad that you brought up natto kinase. We've covered, um, well, on many, many shows, we've talked about flavonoids because that's what we have with Autron Teal. It's interesting that the first part of the protocol to handle people who may be suspicious of, I want to avoid clotting or... I got the injection. I don't want to find out in four to six months that I'm one of the mm-hmm. died suddenly. So part of their uh, mini protocol is natokinase, aspirin, omega-3. Everyone knows about omega-3. Um, resveratrol or a flavonoid. And it's funny with Autrontil uh, Pro, we combine essentially the, the bacteria that's in natokinase that causes the fermentation with Autrontil, very, very powerful flavonoid. And a low carb, high fat diet, high mm. fat in, yeah. in omega three. Yeah. Of course, um, the other side of that would be to add L arginine to increase nitric oxide, forcing uh, vascular dilation, um, ivermectin to sweep up uh, spike protein. We can talk about that in a moment. Yeah, we're gonna talk about that in a second. And then intermittent fasting. So anyway, you can, like I said, you can find all this stuff in the protocol. But it's quite interesting, and it makes synergistic sense to put these things together. Can we role play really quick? Sure. You be a traditional cardiologist or traditional internal medicine doctor, and I come to you, and I have symptoms of what might be microthrombosis, macrothrombosis. We both agree that maybe some of these symptoms could be due to having a clot. Mm-hmm. And what drug would you like to put me on? Probably Plavix. Uh, okay, so Dr. Plavix, I was doing a little reading on Plavix. Uh-huh. And I noticed it's an antiplatelet drug. Right. And so that's going to help me not, like, have any more problems with that. And so I don't, if I don't, have, if my platelets don't work real well, I don't form clots. Mm-hmm. Well. What's well, your problem, Ken? I've got to go to another patient. I, I know. I want to ask you a question. I found this supplement called natokinase. I've never heard of that. Well, I just want to know, does Plavix have any data to show that it can cause proteolytic cleavage of actually both the spike protein and it can actually break up amyloid protein? I don't like where this is going. Would you rather have Zarelto? <laughs> <laughs> Dude, yeah. that's what makes Natokinase so effing cool. I know. <gasps> we're on Rumble. Can I? No, I guess we're on other places. I, was, I really would like to start dropping some F-bombs on this show. <laughs> I, got told, <laughs> I got told by a patient. He's super sweet. He loves the podcast. And he goes, uh, my wife thinks you have a potty mouth. Can you stop it? I'm like, I no. will work on it. <laughs> but anyways, I didn't know that. And I'm not trying to bash a cardiologist or anything. No. I would have looked at a patient and said, dude, I don't, a supplement's not doing it. Freaking natokinase seems badass. Yeah. So, yeah, no, it does. It seems quite badass. But, and just so you know, I was totally role-playing. Uh, I think that's what they had responsibly. Dude, I believed it. I was yeah. like, why is this guy co-hosting with me? We do not think alike. <laughs> I kind of kind of felt like like when you when you wake up and you're like you're like my spouse doesn't even know me. Yeah, she did. <laughs> oh, but one other thing, really quick before we run out and do this. So natokinase, we've already said that it helps with fibrinolysis. It actually breaks down those amyloid proteins, and it actually um, you know causes this proteolytic cleavage of the spike protein of the thing that causes it. But keep in mind. 
it has an excellent safety profile. So keep that in the back of your mind. That's awesome. Yeah. That's, I mean, that, well, safety first, right? Do you know harm? That's what because we're after? it seems too good to be true. Like, why aren't we freaking talking about this? Yeah. I, 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 uh, frankly, I don't know. The only other comparison, I, and I learned about it from them as well, was the Lumbrokinase, which is somewhat similar in coming from the earthworms. <laughs> yes. I mean, I'm, I can't wait to see where you're going with this. I just, I read that also. So basically, Lumbrokinase does the same thing. It's an enzyme, but it's only produced by earthworms. So I just had an image of, like, what do you do for a living? I harvest lumbokinase. <laughs> <laughs> just sitting there at work, just squeezing your yeah, words. Yeah, yeah, it's a dirty job for sure. <laughs> well, uh, so that that would be the the antithrombolytics uh, course. Anything to add in this area for for that part of the drugs within the protocol? Well, in the, in the thrombolytic, so. If you're wondering if you've had thrombolytic, some people think that brain fog, some people think that the lack of taste, lack of smell oh, yeah. is microthrombosis. Of course. So we're not talking, oh, well, I haven't had a stroke, so I obviously don't have that. We're talking microthrombosis. Possibly, it could all be related to this. If you recall back when we were doing the COVID files, though, we made mention that we're probably losing somewhat of, a, of blood flow to the olfactory nerve because there's not a whole lot of vascular representation around there. A microthrombosis uh, or thrombosis could easily block pathways for you know the uh, the blood to reach in and around the olfactory nerve and i wouldn't be surprised if that's why people lose their taste at least even if it's only briefly they just aren't perfusing in and around that nerve yeah so um after that after talking about the uh, antithrombolytics you get into the first line therapies the first line therapy the first thing mentioned as we said earlier in the show is intermittent fasting and there are lots of different references and resources for people to go to when they want to look up how to fast effectively and how to engage in intermittent fasting. Ken and I both have our own regimens on intermittent fasting. Usually for me, Monday through Friday, I typically, and not always, but I typically don't eat until around 2.30 or 3 every day. And I usually wrap up whatever I'm going to eat every day by 7.30 or 8. That's pretty much my window all my caloric intake other than my coffee and whatever fat I have in the coffee, half and half or MCT oil. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't know that there's any all encompassing way for someone to participate in fasting and uh, intermittent fasting and breaking their way in there. Just know that you can always go to um, goodness gracious who they referenced. They referenced, uh, they referenced uh, Jason Fung, but oh, they did. Yeah. Dom uh, D'Agostino is another one. And Walter Longo. And Walter Longo. There's Those are pretty much the, the top three yeah. guys who've got the data and the science, but you know why they want the fasting, right? In this particular protocol. Let's talk about why. Oh, in this protocol? Yeah. Why? Autophagy. Autophagy. Replacing the damaged cells. If, if you feel like that if you believe that there might be a, an interruption in the way that your cell is existing and it happens to be producing something that's toxic to your body, like a spike protein, allow your body the opportunity to replace it with something that's not going to do that anymore. Absolutely. So autophagy is why they bring in the intermittent fasting. Um, the next, and, there, and like I said, just pay a lot of attention before you engage with fasting. There are right ways to do it, and not everybody's the same. Pregnant mm-hmm. women, young people, it's far different for them than someone who is a 40-year-old male. Yeah. Um, ivermectin. So the big, the big no-name what drug. What a polarizing word that nobody knew about. The Nobel Prize winner yes. drug 
from, I think it was either 2015, I believe. It, it won a Nobel Prize, and suddenly now it's demonized everywhere. Um, so ivermectin, do you want to talk about why it's, it's great, why it goes well with intermittent fasting? Well, I'll tell you what, there's, I love the fact that ivermectin has been around for a super long time, and it actually has been known to be an antiviral for many different types of viruses. Yeah. And on that level, there, it works by attaching to parts of the virus and making it hard for the virus to actually penetrate the cell. And then, second, it can actually stop the virus from messing with your cells by blocking part of uh, the portion where the virus gets into the cell itself. So it blocks it from coming in. If it's in, it blocks it from doing its job. And it can act like a little tiny a zinc ionophore to allow other things to come in and help. That's what it does on the viral level. How it compares to fasting, you tell me. Well, they say that it works synergistically with fasting or intermittent fasting to rid the body of spike protein. I don't know that I fully understand the mechanism itself, but they're quite confident that that's what's happening. And what I thought was really cool, we won't go super deep into dosages and stuff like that for every single one of these, but the thing that I thought was great about their protocol for such a drug that doesn't, quote-unquote, have enough data behind it. They spent quite a bit of real estate within this protocol talking specifically about how to move people into testing them with ivermectin to see if it's going to make a difference, and then how to remove it from those who aren't having an immediate uh, positive reaction to see if they still notice, oh, I'm getting worse. So they've got a protocol here where 0.3 milligrams per kilogram daily after 10 days, if they are benefiting from it, you move them up to 0.6 to see if they have benefit from them and leave them there for at least two months. And I two say months. at least because after that, you're going to experiment with weaning them down to see if they still are maintaining. Some people are just producing spike protein. And as Ken mentioned back on episode 99, for at least 15 months for several people, they still have been producing spike protein which is what's important about having autophagy. You're wanting your body to be able to rid itself of those cells which are producing the protein, the, the spike protein, which is making you ill. Um, there is a protocol within here for the ivermectin on what to do with somebody who is or isn't improving and how to schedule that dosing and, and to titrate one way or the other. They do an excellent job, I felt like, in here on saying exactly why they're doing what they're doing. But it's potent anti-inflammatory. It binds to the spike protein, aiding in the elimination by the host. And, um, oh, also, when taking ivermectin in conjunction with the therapy that involves flavonoids, autrontil, quercetin, uh, resveratrol, it's advised to take them not at the same time. So I would imagine one in the morning and one in the afternoon and, and then later in the day. I didn't come across that, really? Yeah, yeah. I said that just stagger them morning and night just because they may not perform as well. Mm. So, um, I, but other than that, that's, um, it seems like a pretty easy thing to do. And as someone who's taken uh, ivermectin and polyphenols in the same day, I feel, feel fine. Yeah, I really, I don't know if a lot of the bioavailability stuff has been looked at, like, yeah. in, you know, thorough, but it's theoretical, and I, I agree with them, you know, just... I'm glad you said the theoretical thing. Some of, I would say some of the walk back in here is a little CYA to make sure that you're not... For sure. Because when, you, when, when, you're, when you're trying to be a pioneer and you don't, have, you don't have your own CDC or NIH helping you help people, then it makes it a little bit difficult. So for everyone out there that 
is like, oh my gosh, I have read that ivermectin is BS. They just list a whole host of references. Lair et al. observed ivermectin docking in region of leucine 91 of SARS-CoV-2 spike protein blocking entry. Another study that looks at this and says higher free binding energy of spike protein. Another one. They just go on and on with these different mechanisms. This has actually been studied ad nauseum yeah. with COVID-19. So most recent study that's made the main press just happened a few days ago. It's published in JAMA. And I say this because it's funded by the NIH. And JAMA um, is highly funded by pharma. I won't even even give opinion on this. But regardless, it was just published. It's called The Effect of Higher Dose Ivermectin for Six Days versus Placebo on Time to Sustained Recovery in Outpatients with COVID-19. So what they did is they actually looked. um, I have not teased out the data completely. In other words, I've not read the data to see how many people dropped out and all this other stuff. So we're just going to kind of go over the results. It was 1,206 people. And um, what they looked at, 84% of the people had had at least two vaccine doses. And what they showed is, is that basically everybody got better at 11 days. Everybody got six days of ivermectin and they stopped and everybody got better. And so what they, their conclusion was in the ivermectin group, um, among outpatients with mild to moderate COVID-19, treatment with ivermectin with a maximum targeted dose of uh, 0.6 mg per kg or 600 micrograms, so it was 0.6 uh, daily for six days compared with placebo did not improve time to sustained recovery. Everyone recovered at the same time. And what's really f- fascinating is there were no adverse reactions in both groups. So the key to a study like this is they didn't use ivermectin in the way that these guys are saying. Correct. And then they downplayed that there was no freaking side effects. No. So if it's not going to hurt you, why not? Try it. That's exactly what uh, Dr. Corey said multiple times. Give it, give it a shot if it's not hurting anybody. Um, and just to be clear, that was COVID, COVID nineteen specifically. In that, in yeah. that small thing, this is of course uh, someone who's already suffering from a vaccine injury. And um, so the next thing after ivermectin and after fasting is, if you know that you feel like you're being fatigued, then don't overexert yourself. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's really what it comes down to. And they attributed that to uh, mitochondrial dysfunction. So if you don't, if you have mitochondrial dysfunction, what that means in layman's terms is you don't have the ability to appropriately make adenosine triphosphate, which is the energy block for the cell. It can't be, uh, the, the phosphate can't be cleaved to form ADP. And if, you're, if your mitochondria are damaged, you may need to go through mitophagy. And we'll get to that in a moment. Yeah. But, um, but effectively, what they're saying here is the fail. The many times people get really super fatigued because they have a failure to augment their stroke volume, the amount of blood that the heart is responding to, to to the demand of the body. And if you don't have enough energy formed by your mitochondria, you can't keep up. So it's a true cellular problem, and that's what we're trying to correct. Well, let's let's talk about that mitochondria because you know this better than I do. So in the protocol, a lot of it is very layperson, and then some of the protocol, like the ivermectin, gets a little confusing. The other one that kind of confused me was this methylene blue. Oh, we can skip ahead to that real quick. Here, uh, let, me, let me just read these real quick. Oh, sure. Go ahead. And then that way we'll, we'll get right to it because I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on these. Uh, Low-dose naltrexone, um, or naltrexone, of course, it's analgesic, and it's neuromodulating. You can look at the at the uh, rationale and the dosage within there. We've already talked about natokinase as an anti-platelet uh, uh, or anti-fibrolytic uh, issue. Um, melatonin, not for sleep, 
in this protocol, uh, a regulator of mitochondrial function. So basically, they they view melatonin as an ability uh, as a uh, modulator that can help mitochondrial health. Uh, magnesium. I do want a, a, a quick throwback to that. We've talked about magnesium on the show. Yeah. In order for it to be the best one for it to be absorbed and have uh, interface with the cells, you're probably going to look at mag three and eight, L three and eight. And then after that would be glycinate and then malate or tarate. But I would say L three and eight close behind glycinate for absorption. If you're looking yes. at mag citrate, you're just going to have a lot of diarrhea. The, 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 the salts, the salts matter in terms of taking magnesium. So don't just grab any magnesium. You're going to want to lose, uh, use a, a mag three and or glycinate. So that takes us right to, to methylene blue. Okay. Before I saw this protocol, my only experience with methylene blue mostly was knowing that we could use it for somebody who had inhaled too much carbon monoxide. Yeah. Because for methemoglobinemia or somebody who smoked a lot of cigarettes and they were having they were having difficulty with their uh, red blood cells, I never use it for that, but I've read that that was one use for it. I, I know that you can do tissue staining with it and tissue, tissue staining. We would see it if you gave them too much cetacane spray to numb their throat. Something about yeah. that would yeah. do it. So, I mean, there's... There it's, are those, it's used in medicine all the time. There are those applications. Yeah. And it makes things really, really blue. Um, and I can, I can still remember being told it's, it's, uh, it functions uh, as a side, not what they use it for, but it, they, it's an MAOI. It blocks yeah. MAO. So, uh, you know, there's the caution of don't use methylene blue. What? Okay. There's a cause. Uh, uh, or you don't want to use methylene blue with somebody who takes an SSRI because right, of serotonergic uh, syndrome and stuff like that. But what they wanted to do here with methylene blue, and I'd never heard of it before, somebody who's suffering from brain fog, obviously they're having a neurogenic problem, right? Mm-hmm. So methylene blue apparently prefers uh, neuronal concentrated tissue. It crosses the blood-brain barrier, and it actually induces mitophagy. Exactly what we need, Okay. So we're going to get high turnover and regeneration of our mitochondria using methylene blue. This isn't easy though, and if you want, they said that you want to be certain that it is a high trusted source of methylene blue before you reconstitute it and take it. So this isn't something just to go out and buy and then begin experiment. And hell, if you don't want blue teeth, I wouldn't do it because you need to be careful the way that you take it. <laughs> yeah. um, and it, it will stain things. But that being said. This I felt like was interesting, especially for the one of the people that you and I both know 100%. who is suffering peripheral neuropathy. Hasn't felt like that she's thought normally in almost two years. I felt like that this could be something that we could try. And then they talked about it. It, it restores electron transport for the mitochondria. That's yeah, a huge eye opener for me. I'd never even thought about that before. So them thinking this far out of the box is fascinating. Well, apparently, and I think you were the one who brought it up. Apparently somebody kind of brought it to their attention because they were experimenting with, with possible stroke recovery or something like that. I don't know. I'd, I'd never seen it in this application before. So I found this to be fascinating. After anything else on methylene blue? No, because I no. mean I really think that the protocol is going to address it far better than I am. But that's that's why people would would, would use methylene blue sunlight and photobiomodulation uh, augments methylene blue apparently. So yeah. you could do it or or not do it. Um, truth is, if you need enough sunlight, we talked about it on the show before on your on your phone, get an app called Dminder, put in your location. It will tell you when. The sunlight where you live 
is producing the right kind of UVB rays so that your body can produce vitamin D. And you don't, not everyone lives in a zone that does it year round like we do here in Texas. Yeah. But um, you can also go to episode five of Gut Check Project and uh, be introduced to James Carroll of Thor Laser. He's an expert in a a photobiomodulation as well as there's uh, Ari Witten, and he wrote a book called The Ultimate Guide to Red Light Therapy. I don't have enough hands-on experience with red light therapy. I know a lot of people use it, but I found this to be interesting that they actually dedicate quite a bit of real estate to that as well. I'm going to kick the next one to you because it's resveratrol Mm. or a combination flavonoid. Yeah. So the biggest thing here is what they notice is that resveratrol – David Sinclair was the one that kind of pointed this out. It turns on the A-sirtuin pathway. Bottom line with this is we're talking about polyphenols. And now we've gotten to the science of these polyphenols. Resveratrol is very poorly absorbed. And so the metabolites are what you need. Quercetin is very poorly absorbed. The metabolites are what you need. What I'm going to say about this and what I would love to get in front of them and discuss is that when you're recommending flavonoids like, uh, and flavonoids are polyphenols, resveratrol and quercetin, for this, for the anti-inflammatory, for the immune balancing effect, they're much more effective when you have the right microbiome to do it. They actually talk about trying a probiotic later in their protocol. I would love to sit and talk with them there because they recommend doing a spore-based biotic, and I agree with that one. What you want to do is take the spore with the polyphenol, the larger the better. So, for instance, in Quebracho, Colorado, and Atrantil, when you have your microbiome break it down, quercetin is there, green tea is there, these different phenolic compounds. So, what I would love (coughs) to contribute as a gastroenterologist when I can sit and talk with them is how do we show them that you can get the, the, you can get a bigger benefit when you make sure you have the right microbiome for this because here's something that we do know we'll do a whole episode on this is that both the vaccine and covid disrupt your microbiome they do and it's been shown because inflammation disrupts it so on that one that's really just what i want to say about that now that you've already kind of moved ahead to the spore-based biotic because it's exactly what they talk about and we've extensively gone over that in the show before why spore-based uh, probiotics are the way to go if you want to recolonize the uh, the the bowel that actually ends the last of the front, the, the the first line therapies. So for the second line, the third line, we're just going to do a cursory overview. And uh, like I said, everything else is available there. The only thing I'll spend a lot of time on on the second line is going to be L-arginine. Get that in here in a second. But vitamin D we've already talked about. N-acetylcysteine we've talked about on the show multiple All times. Um, coincidentally, the FDA tried to make that a drug even though it's just right. an amino acid. Um, L-arginine. Won't spend a lot of time on this, but just the reason why is that L-arginine is the precursor for your body to form nitric uh, uh, nitric oxide. That is a natural vasodilator, and ENOS, which is the endothelial nitric oxide, allows for vessel dilation. Easy enough. If you have too much constriction, thromboses can form, or a uh, little bitty clots can can get stuck. So yeah. that's not what you want. Omega-3 fatty acids, we know what that is. Eat, eat enough fish. Sildenafil, also known as? Viagra. Everybody knows about that, I think. <laughs> but it works It works in combination with, mm. with things like L-arginine. You yeah, so that? basically, well, just, just real briefly, that's a phosphodiesterase inhibitor, which means that nitric oxide sticks around longer and you have increased blood flow. 
Nigella Sativa, I don't have any experience with that. I'm going to go along with them that it is antifungal, antibacterial. It's from Northern Africa, but um, I just, I've never used that before. Yeah, I haven't. I think what we're getting into when we get into line two and line three, it's it's experience that they've had, and we're going to learn more about it ourselves. Outside of that, it's vitamin C. Yeah, but I feel like we've covered a ton here. I feel like this is a mouthful to get through. So just to summarize, this is a very earnest attempt to take some brilliant work by some really smart doctors and they worked really hard to put this together and they're seeing success. I will be honest, much of this outside of methylene blue, outside of a few other things, this is how I've been treating my patients. Yeah. This is exactly what I recommended. It is. To everyone and I'm seeing results. So, woo. Well, you know, and just real quick before we close out, the the other protocol that are on FLCCC, it's not like they're rubber stamping things that were there to do this. There are other things that are on other part of the protocol, like in, in the early uh, the early times to treat COVID infection itself. Of course, hydroxychloroquine was in there, and why it was there. They're, they actually specifically talking here by that's not appropriate here. Yeah. So the the protocols that they have on the pages uh, at flccc.net, they use the rationale behind everything that they have. They've put in tons and tons of work, and it's doctors from around the globe from around the globe that are working to help people that have suffered in this pandemic and in the proposed therapies. So we encourage everyone that's listening to this. If you have a friend, if you have anybody, hit us up. Please. Um, Please hit us up. Ask us questions. Tell us what to talk about next. Because here's the deal. The FLCCC is coming to our area to do a national, international convention. And Eric and I are going to go and we're going to try and eat their brains. So if you have any questions, we're going to ask what they're doing. I'm going to try to explain how possibly I've had better results than they've had because I understand the microbiome a little bit more. Me and Sabine Hazen will... We'll kick it up and talk poop. The so. coolest thing is, is these guys are collaborative. They they want, I mean, it says FLCC Alliance. They simply just want the ability to talk uh, genuinely, openly, and have fair discussion where all sides are listened to for the best of the patient. That's really the only way it's going to happen. It's not going to happen from the top down with edicts, mandates, etc. Absolutely. That's going to do it for episode That's- 100. Episode 100, and so if you're new to Rumble and you haven't heard us before, we do cover a lot of this stuff. It's called the Gut Check Project. Check your ego at the door. We're open to everything. We're trying to stay open-minded, and we do the research for everything. One of the things that we've been researching quite a bit is helping our SIBO friends. That's how come we have the SIBO support box. Go to kbmdhealth.com, and you can learn a little bit about why that actually augments your SIBO therapy. If you don't know what SIBO is, Hit us up and we'll explain it some other time because we talk about it a lot. We do. And we're going to try to link together so it's really easy to navigate from our page at gut, uh, gutcheckproject.com, which is hosted by kbmdhealth.com, but gutcheckproject.com, locals.com, where Gut Check Project will have other content, which is a part of Rumble, rumble.com. Lots of .coms here. Anyhow, we're going to try our best to have everything linked up by the time you hear this. We'll see how far we come. Anyway, thank y'all so much for joining us and uh, keep, uh, keep the emails coming. Yes, please do. Take care, everybody. That's a wrap for this episode of the Gut Check Project, and we appreciate you for being a part of it. Be sure to follow us on your favorite platform for podcasts. You can find the GCP on Locals, YouTube, Spotify, Apple, Rumble, and more. And you can always check out gutcheckproject.com to find all episodes and interact with the show. Tell your friends and family not to wait to get Gut Checked.